is Dialogue with Drake and Debu. My name is Emma Drake. And I am Sweta Debu. This is the podcast talking about all things policy, politics, and pop culture. Our topic for the day is lobbying. Lobbying is an essential tool of advocacy, and it is where we attempt to influence policies and decisions of elected officials, members of regulatory bodies, and other public servants. Professional lobbyists work to influence legislation and decisions on behalf of individuals or organizations hiring them. They can be lobbyists for a single company, which is most often found in the corporate world, or they can be lobbyists for firms that can be then contracted by different individuals and groups who do not have government relations or lobbying staff of their own. Oftentimes, when we think of lobbying, we often reduce it to corporate lobbying, where big companies attempt to have tax breaks, more lax regulations, or other measures to facilitate their business. But lobbying is actually an integral part of grassroots advocacy and activism movement and their impact on public policy. And many listeners may already be part of groups that lobby on PEI. For example, the PEI Teachers Federation, the PEI Federation of Agriculture, various labor unions such as CUPE, the Dairy Farmers of Canada, PEI Association of Newcomers to Canada, or if you're like Sweta and I, the UPEI Student Union. In Canada, lobbying is kept transparent and ethical by the Office of the Commissioner of Lobbying of Canada. To chat with us today about not only the Office of the Commissioner of Lobbying Canada, but all things lobbying and policy, is Manager of Government Policy with Impact Public Affairs, graduate from St. Thomas University in Fredericton, New Brunswick, a moot court connoisseur, lover of Pump House Radler and all things East Coast, our great friend, Brianna Workman. Brianna, thank you so much for being with us this evening. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you both doing? Not too bad, all things considered. Another day in paradise? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Another day where COVID is a little less stressful on PI, so. Yep. No, we're feeling pretty lucky and we're definitely keeping all of our friends and colleagues across Canada in front of mind and hoping that they're staying safe, such as yourself. Thank you so much. And yeah, same to you folks as well. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today again. So, you know, our first formal question to you is, how would you describe lobbying? Yeah, so it's a great question. I would first and foremost, I would describe it as an important part of the political process. And I know we'll get into a little bit of this later in terms of what that the role is in that process. But I think first and foremost, it's it's a legitimate activity. And it's, it's an important part of how policy and, and, and change happens in politics. Um, I would also describe it as a specific tactic or a set of tactics under a broader umbrella of what we call advocacy. So as you folks, I, I know you two both know, there's, there's a number of ways to go about doing advocacy and there's a number of, of different tactics you can leverage for that purpose depending on what your goals are and what you're looking to do. Um, and I, I think lobbying is, is part and parcel of that. And it's, it's kind of a segment of that. Um, I'd also say it's a pretty specific and, and regulated activity that covers uh, a variety of different means of communicating and engaging uh, with public office holders. So we, we often talk about elected officials, but as I know we'll get into a little bit later, there's a number of uh, staff and, and different folks who are defined as public office holders and designated public office holders that are also uh, part of lobbying and, and fall under um, the legislation and, and different requirements as well. Um, I also think I always like to add this little dash of political history. And I know you folks have done um, lobbying training with impact. So you may have heard this a <laughs> little bit before. Uh, but as with many things in Canada, in terms of how we govern ourselves and systems of governments, this systems of governance, this word lobbying also comes from that, mm -hmm. uh, the Westminster system. And so basically, um, outside of the House of Commons, there is a lobby. Um, and originally, this, this activity and notion began as people showing up in the lobby. And as um, members of Parliament were coming out of the House of Commons, um, folks would try to get their attention. And it was known as the redress of grievances, which I think is mm -hmm is, you know, it's, it's a funny story and it's a funny little piece of, of political history. That's why it's called lobbying. Um, but it actually is, it's, it's an important 
piece to note because there is still some some fundamental um, aspects of that that are still part of why we do lobbying today, although we do it much differently, of course, today. Folks don't generally show up in the House of Commons, uh, definitely not right now because of the pandemic, but also just in regular times. <laughs> uh, definitely not uh, the way that we typically go about doing it today. But um, that piece about engaging with elected officials and that piece about the redress of grievances is still there. I would say that it's about a lot more than the redress of grievances. There's a lot of reasons um, that you can go about lobbying someone or want to, to begin lobbying. It can be about um, promoting your profession or your organization. It can be about um, offering different types of policy recommendations. Um, sometimes it's actually offering feedback on things that are working really well and saying, mm. actually, don't change this, um, which I think is important too, to acknowledge when things are going well or when good programs and policies are in place. So those are all reasons you can lobby. But again, that engagement and um, and that that in, with elected officials and, and also trying to address different issues is still pretty fundamental um, right from that origin of where the word comes from and, and how it all began. Um, and in, in the terms of the legislation, which um, we'll talk about a little bit more detail because there's lots of pieces to that, but um, the legal definition is, is that lobbying has three pieces to it. Um, basically, if you're paid um, to do lobbying, that's when you have a lobbyist. Um, when you're looking to communicate with a public office holder, um, and when you're looking to communicate about specific topics. So those topics can be legislation, bills, policies, programs, grants, um, contracts, arranging a meeting, um, and some of those requirements differ depending what kind of organization you work for and how much time you spend lobbying, um, et cetera. But that's generally how I would describe uh, lobbying in, in all its different facets. Mm, I think that's a really robust and clear way to describe lobbying and I know especially for for listeners who may not be familiar with the term or who perhaps don't know the origin history as you described like I think that's really useful to kind of set the context of this this entire conversation and as we know like with everything over history it does evolve over time so fortunately now uh, folks don't have to uh, air their grievances in the lobby of any building they uh, are able to uh, schedule meetings as well as have a bit more of a formal setting. And uh, as you said, there are now three kind of legal pillars associated with uh, the process of lobbying. Uh, but of course, we know that there are uh, legislation and regulations associated with that. So our next question is specifically, what is a registered lobbyist? And what are some of the behind the scenes protocols and regulations that must be followed in order to be recognized as a registered lobbyist in Canada? Yeah, for sure. So um, I guess I'll, I'll preface the, the answer to this question with that. I'll just kind of default to the federal legislation um, because it is the one I work with the most and, and the one I know best. But um, I will note right off the bat is there is relevant um, uh, provincial lobbying legislation in all of the provinces. Um, I recently registered to lobby in all of the provinces, so I, I did get a chance to gain some familiarity with all of them. And overall, they're, they're based on largely the same principles. There's some differences in certain provinces in terms of what you need to, um, what types of information you need to include, um, but they're overall pretty minor, uh, when you need to report, what you need to report, um, things like that. But overall, the same overarching principles are, are pretty consistent across the country but I'll largely speak to the, the federal legislation. Um, so I, I would say, yeah, like you noted, there, there's a good amount of responsibility placed on, on folks who engage in lobbying and, and it's for all very good reasons to ensure mm -hmm. Conducted ethically to ensure there's a level of transparency, um, so so folks can see um, who's engaging in lobbying and on what topics and, and who they're lobbying. Um, and, and I think that's really really important um, to to ensure that the the activity is conducted prop, uh, properly. And um, so your requirements to register as a lobbyist, to, to be a registered lobbyist, it differs a little bit depending on uh, where you're situated, what type of organization you work for, and then like I said, in some cases, how much time you spend in your day-to-day -day work life um, doing lobbying. Um, 
so again, like going back to those legal terms, payment, communication, and some of those, those topics that I listed, um, I'll start with, we'll differentiate first between consultant and in-house lobbyist. Um, so I'll start with consultant because it's a little bit easier in terms of when you need to register. Uh, you always need to register if you're a consultant lobbyist. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this is, of course, when you do, and this is what I do, um, work for a firm like Impact or any type of consulting firm where you're being paid to represent and lobby on behalf of a client um, and you always have to register in those cases so you need to register yourself as an individual and um, you know go in create an account you need to fill out certain information about yourself where you work um, a little bit about if you've um, if you've ever held a public office and, and worked in government that type of information is, is tied to you of course as an individual and then you need to register for every client you represent um, and, and do work on behalf of. Um, you have 10 days to do this federally. So basically, whenever you start working with a client, whether it's you know making a couple phone calls or sending out meeting invites, then you've begun an undertaking and you need to register within 10 days. So this is, is pretty noteworthy because you know sometimes um, at Impact, for example, we'll have other members of the team um, maybe help out on certain files and, and make some calls to MPs offices. Um, and so it's really important that, to know that as, if you're a consultant lobbyist, as soon as you partake in any kind of that work that has to do with arranging a meeting, um, which is, a, you know, a big part of what we do, then you have to register within 10 days. Um, so that's a little bit with that. And then same case in the provinces, you need to register as a consultant lobbyist, and then you need to register per client. Um, in-house lobbyists is where the things start to differ a little bit. So for both the act federally defines corporations and organizations. Um, and you have to register as a lobbyist in two cases um, if you, you fall into either one of those categories. One is if you um, employ someone, either one person or more than one people whose job is to communicate with public office holders and do those types of communication activities that are constituted as lobbying. Um, and the other one is, is if you have a significant or if you have a staff member that it's a significant part of their duties to mm. do lobbying work and this is what we call the 20 percent rule this okay. is where you can get a little bit <laughs> a little bit confusing <laughs> but, um basically um if you think about a, a regular five-day work week um if you were to spend one day of your your week um doing lobbying communicating with that uh with public office holders, then you would meet that threshold and you'd have to register. So I'll give an example of this. Prior to working at Impact, I worked for a not-for-profit. Um, my or my uh, responsibilities were largely communication-based, but I had um, some types of um, government relations type work, um, but it certainly wasn't up to 20% of my duties. So we didn't have to register in that case, but it was something that we consistently monitored in case we were doing more engagement with government to ensure um, that, you know, when we we got there as an organization and for me as the individual who was largely doing that work um, that we did register at that time so um, so we didn't have to while I was there but it was something that we were mindful of and, and something you know organizations that maybe do a little bit of this type of work but maybe not a ton um, it's just something to, to be mindful of, of when you get to that significant part of duties or that 20% rule mm -hmm. um, so that's when you need to register. Um, and, and then after that, you, uh, so it's, it seems really complicated. It's not too bad. Uh, the, I do, the federal lobbyist uh, registration system is you know, pretty user-friendly. So once you're in and registered, whether it's as an organization or as a consultant, um, then there is some regular maintenance you need to do. So you need to file uh, what are called monthly communication reports. So this is when you have um, an oral and arranged uh, communication with a designated public office holder. Um, and so, again, not all the provinces do the, this, some of them do, but federally they distinguish between um, public office holders and designated public office holders. Um, so some examples, uh, designated public office holders are members of parliament, senators, um, prime minister, anyone in a minister's office and all of their staff are designated public office holders. Those are some wow. examples. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So if you meet with any of those folks, um, it, within a month, you need to file a report. If you meet, for example, with um, a backbench member of parliament staff, 
they're a public office holder, but they're not a designated public office holder. So you don't need to file a report for that. So that's, that's an example of one distinction, but there's, there's lots of folks who fall into those categories. So again, something to always be mindful of when who you're meeting with, especially if you're taking lots of meetings, so you're reporting the right ones um, with, with designated public office holders. So you need to do that monthly and they're pretty simple as well. Once you have the registration information in, um, you need to register who you met with, when, what department they're in um, and some general topics of what you talked about, which are pretty broad, can be things like budget, infrastructure, you don't need to detail the whole meeting, um, but that's a little bit of the maintenance. And then last but not least, um, federally, and, and this is also similar in some jurisdictions as well, lobbyists also need to follow a code of conduct, um, mm -hmm. which is based on some of those, those words I mentioned earlier in terms of professionalism, transparency, um, honesty, and so it covers um, different things like conflict of interest, preferential access, uh, gifts, political activities. So, you know, you need to be in, in compliance with the legislation, of course, in terms of registering and reporting, but you also need to be in compliance with that um, code of conduct as well. So, uh, so there's lots to, to look at um, when you first kind of get started. <laughs> I started at Impact a few months ago. Um, there was, I, I was fortunate in my master's, we actually, um, I took an advocacy class and we had the chance to actually speak to um, the federal lobbying commissioner. She came in and did a really fantastic presentation to our class and and I had an exam on that class so my study notes from that exam became really useful <laughs> which was hilarious uh, so, I have, yeah so I was like pulling up study materials from that um, but again really useful degree uh, so <laughs> about that um, but uh, yeah so it can be a lot at first but fortunately you know um, a lot of my colleagues have been doing this for a number of years and, and once you get into the swing of it um, and get used to the system it's, it's really not too bad so um, yeah that's that's largely the, the big pieces of what you have to do um, behind the scenes I guess Wow, thank you so much for such a comprehensive answer. I know I've learned a lot over the past five minutes and, you know, <laughs> just the many intricacies of lobbying and, you know, an in-house consultant versus uh, an in-house person versus someone who's a consultant. So that's if super podcast, I would like make you an org chart, but <laughs> I tried to, to describe it as best I could. <laughs> just try visualizing it. <laughs> I'm very visual personally. So yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, when you're doing lobbying from day to day and you, you know, you're using different strategies um, each time, what would you say is kind of like the secret sauce to effective lobbying? What is the X factor that, you know, where the success or the failure of a project hinges on? Yeah. So I, I think it's a great question. And I think, um, you know, depending what you're doing and what the goal is, there, there can be some specifics and maybe specific ingredients in that secret sauce to ensure you're successful. Um, but I think overall, there's there's a couple things that you can always do to uh, to ensure you're effective um, and and to ensure that you know even if you're not successful, that you can have a good meeting and you can take what you learn from that and build it into um, you know what you're doing in terms of ongoing lobbying and, and the next time you go around. So. Um, I think if you kind of break it down just in terms of preparation, doing the actual lobbying, the meeting itself, which, you know, lobbying isn't just meetings, but I think, you know, that's the, the main piece or what we're often trying to, to get at in terms of that engagement. And then what you do after the meeting is, is mm -hmm. all really key pieces. So um, preparation is key. I, I think um, in order to be successful, you're probably spending um, five to 10 more times preparing for a meeting than you are actually in the half an hour meeting itself and <laughs> half an hour as you folks know is, is on a good day if everything goes according to plan uh, I know you both have done your fair share of lobbying as well and you know that MLAs and MPs are busy people and, and things can shift so sometimes what was originally a 30 minute meeting ends up being a five minute meeting so um, so that ability to be adaptable I think is really key and that comes with good preparation um, to know what your key points are and you know I know we've talked about like what's your elevator pitch if you get five minutes minutes with with an MP what do you need to tell them about why you're there and what you want to talk to them about um, so all of that goes into preparation and as I know you both know this goes in months and months before you even actually think about sending out a meeting request or or things like that there's a lot of policy and research work that typically goes into what you're going to lobby on and what you're going to bring forward to to government or whoever um, you're choosing to lobby um, in terms of developing what your priorities are, what your asks are, and, and also 
drilling those down to really specific recommendations. And that takes a lot of time. Um, that is, is, you know, in and of itself, probably one of the, the biggest pieces. But if you do that really well, then again, you're setting yourself up for success the rest. Um, we do a lot of training with clients at Impact. And I know you folks have had the chance to participate in something quite similar to that um, uh, in your time um, in student leadership. So that's really key as well. Um, for example, with, with what I do at Impact now as well, we, um, we have some clients that are also very new to, to lobbying and government relations. And so uh, doing those types of, of trainings to, to just um, uh, show them how to use their time effectively and how to best leverage their experience is really useful. Um, we talk a lot about doing your homework. So knowing who you're meeting with, uh, reading their bio, you know, spending some time on on Google um, and just seeing what they're about, maybe what they did before politics. Um, it seems like a simple thing, but it can make a world of difference. And um, I know particularly in Atlantic Canada, if you go into a meeting with, with someone from Atlantic Canada and they want to know, you know, where you're from and who your family is and who your grandparents are and all these things. And, uh, but being able to say that uh, you're a graduate of um, whatever university, or if you have a personal connection there or a shared experience, you know, um, elected officials are, are people too and, and being able to share those experiences is super helpful to just set the tone of the meeting and it makes a connection and, and it makes it memorable as well um, in terms of creating that that longer relationship and so doing your homework that's also part of it um, sometimes just setting up who's going to say what in the meeting or who's going to take the lead on certain aspects um, using your time really effectively you know Again, like we said, even if you get that half an hour, making sure you really stick to that half an hour and getting through your points. Um, you know, being strategic about who you're putting in which meetings. We know that um, we talk a lot about how that expression, all politics is local, um, especially, you know, I work with a lot of large associations that have memberships across the country. Um, and yes, sometimes we're targeting certain MPs because maybe they sit on a certain committee um, or whatever their, their position might be. Um, but it's really great if when you get that meeting with them, if you can put a member or someone who has local experience is really, really key. So also thinking about, you know, who's going to take which meeting based on expertise, where they're from, a variety of different factors is, is really important too. Um, and then also really concise briefing documents. There's a lot of offices that will ask for documents in advance, or even if you don't send it in advance, you want to leave something behind that really, really concisely says, um, you know, what your priorities are and, and what your asks were, and you want to leave those behind as well. Um, and, and yeah, in the meeting, I think there's, there's a lot of pieces. Again, you want to be natural and, and conversational. Again, elected officials, they're just people, they want to have good conversations too um, and talk about different issues that, they're, that they also really value. Um, and so, it, you know, we often just tell our clients, you know a lot about, about your organization and your profession and just share that in a really natural and conversational way. Um, there's, I think, a little bit at the top you want to, of the meeting, you often want to define the problem. Why are you there? What precipitated um, getting you in front of that MP? Um, again, drawing those local connections, examples. If you're talking about something really broad, like um, investing in infrastructure for economic recovery, talk about a, a local project if you can in the MP's riding that is maybe going to add that value to the community uh, or something like that. That's really about you know illustrating those messages and, and drawing those connections. And that's an example. Um, um, the other thing, uh, you both know this quite well, but you want to make a direct ask, a direct request um, before you leave. Because, uh, you know, again, um, MPs love to, to have conversations, but they also know that that you're there for a reason as well. And, and they're expecting you to, to make a direct request. So and that request can take a variety of forms. It can be um, writing letters to, to the ministers responsible. Um, it can be asking them to raise an issue in caucus or in question period. It can be asking them to... Um, connect with their colleagues on a committee to share what you've talked about um, and also listen um, creating time to hear uh, from the person you're meeting with as well it can be really natural to to pitch and say all the things you want to say but um, you also want to hear from them um, you want to know maybe how they've interacted with that issue and what their their experience is or what they've heard um, and because that helps you understand their perspective and, and how you can offer them more. Maybe they'll say, I've heard about this issue and this is a particular concern in my writing. And maybe you have additional research or information you could share on that topic. Um, 
and so it's just really important to also create that space. Also, just how things are working in, in Ottawa or in any capital across the country in, in terms of timelines. Sometimes there's there's a study going on at a committee and you're meeting with that committee member to say, hey, do you know when the committee is going to be focusing on that? Um, that's really helpful. This year, a really good example, pre-budget consultations um, started much later than usual. Um, so meeting with um, the chair of the finance committee, Wayne Easter, really helpful to just get his insight. Where do you think as the chair, the finance committee is going? Um, you know, that was a question we asked him throughout the fall um, because there, there was, um, the timeline was certainly different this year. So those types of uh, little pieces of, of intel are really useful. So you wanna create the time to also hear from the MP, hear about their experience with that issue and their perspective um, as well. So those are some things I think you can do during the meeting and then after I would say follow-up is a huge piece you want to if the MP showed interest in a certain um, piece of information or a certain area you want to if you have additional like I said research you want to follow up with that and you want to keep in touch after that because lobbying is it's not transactional it's definitely a cycle mm -hmm. and you want to keep fostering that relationship it's you know it's one thing to get the meeting once during your advocacy week or your hill day but um, you know and pre-budget cycle that's that's a big push for lobbying but in order to really be successful over time in the long term it's really about building those relationships you also want to keep in touch you want to follow up and 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 just uh continue to foster that relationship as well so those are some things that i would say broadly you can be successful we'll get, you know again uh, you can't always guarantee success but i think if you do those things you'll you'll get into some good meetings and you'll get some good feedback and you'll consistently be able to refine your approach and hopefully get some little wins along the way to then get to your your ultimate win or goal in the end that's a wonderful way i think to describe the secret sauce of lobbying and i think to touch on the last point that you brought up is um, it's a lot about relationships like you said oftentimes we think about you know meeting with an mp or meeting with a senator or meeting with a staff member is very transactional both ways and it can be but you know that's only successful based on a strong relationship and the relationship is a really important piece of that in order to facilitate effective lobbying to get those little wins and then eventually those big wins like you said and a big piece too with relationships is, um, you know, it can't just be with one particular group and it can't just be with one particular person. Strong lobbying as well as government relations has to be across the board. And that's mm -hmm. where the political piece comes in with our next question. Of course, we know lobbyists and as well your folks' clients are meeting with everyone. It's not just the governing party. It could be opposition. It could be the third party. It could be a key stakeholder, you know, and it could be a combination thereof. And hopefully it is if you're taking, you know, a diverse approach in order to ensure that you're meeting with everyone, they have the update information and you could be pushing it from all angles. So into our next question, how would you describe that relationship of politics and lobbying in Canada as they really go hand in hand? Yeah, exactly. I agree with everything you just said, Emma. Like they they go hand in hand, and, and like I said at the beginning, it's it's a hugely important part of the political process. Um, I think no matter where you're situated, whether you're in government or opposition, um, it's and I think it's something that's it's mutually beneficial, right? Because there's research that shows that um, MPs and you know these may not be the most precise numbers, but MPs offices deal with something like 900 to 1,000 issues any given month. Wow. Um, so, you know that's and, and of course <laughs> it's. Uh, it's, it's realistic when you think about it, just all the different types of things they have to deal with and, and all the things going on across the country. And so, you know, there's, I think there's some incredible hardworking MPs and MLAs and, and folks across the country, and they also bring their own set of expertise and experience to their work, but you can't be a, an expert on everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, and that's just the reality. And so that's where I think there, there is a huge benefit to meeting with um, lobbyists and meeting with other groups. Um, because it gives you a perspective on maybe an industry or a profession um, or a vantage point that you may not have as an elected official. Um, and then as an elected official, like we said, there's also that, that exchange of, of information and, and politicians have their own set of powers to help move things forward. And so I do think that there's, there's a benefit for both, um, both sides of, of people engaging in lobbying. And, and that's really the role um, I see 
um, in terms of that role in politics is it provides an additional expertise and perspective and, and you folks will know this as well, but that's where you often get really great um, policy ideas and recommendations is from um, the folks who are really the, the experts in their space and in their experience and in their profession. Um, and, you know, and for, for folks who may be newer to that issue or may not be as familiar with it, that's fantastic to have a group come to them and say, hey, yeah, well, I, I don't know. I haven't been an elected official, but I can imagine that that's that's a great scenario when a group comes to this problem. But we also have the solution to it based on this research and this experience and what we're hearing from from people. Um, this is why we think it would work, and this is why we think it'd be effective. And if you have the research to back it up, that's fantastic. Um, and and you know, there's there's a benefit to both sides of that, and also that really that on the ground perspective. I know a lot of times in, in the meetings, I'll take. Um, you know, we want to familiarize the, um, the person we're meeting with, with the organization, whether, you know, it's an association or a company, um, you know, who they are, what they're about, um, and we'll often ask, you know, do you have any experience or, or have you ever dealt with this issue before? And, and that's, again, part of that listening piece to hear their perspective. Um, and then also, particularly right now with COVID, I think um, elected officials are really keen to hear about what are the issues in, in different parts of the country and, and what are the people who are living and breathing these realities every day, whether it's in healthcare or mm. construction or um, you know, a, a variety of different sectors, that on the ground perspective of what people are seeing and hearing and the issues they're struggling with, you know, that's why folks I think tend to get into elected offices to understand and, and hear those issues and then find ways to solve them. And I think all of those, those pieces come together in, in lobbying. And so that's the relationship and the role I really see between both uh, lobbyists and, and lobbying uh, and groups who partake in lobbying, as well as um, for elected officials and, and other staff and public office holders who are being lobbied as well. Absolutely. Well, and, and it's oftentimes we see that, you know, for policy to get passed, you have both internal and external stimuli that come into play internal, yeah. you know, maybe it wasn't someone's platform, maybe it's been a priority for, you know, certain elected officials for a while, and that's something they really want to see, but also external stimuli as to, you know, what are current events or what new issues are being brought forward by lobbying groups and other different organizations. So that was really cool to hear about. Definitely, you know, a win-win relationship on both sides. Oftentimes we find though, you know, if you're going into a, a lobby meeting with a public official um, and you're trying to make a direct ask and get a commitment out of them, you get um, very ambiguous answers such as, we will look into it, we're working on it, or um, I'll definitely think about it. Sometimes you get no's, sometimes you get, you know, very oftentimes, you know, you're just reading through your policy recommendation, they nod, they won't say a word, and you move on to the next one. So that can be kind of discouraging to someone who's going into such a meeting. But, you know, as an effective lobbyist, how do you successfully move forward with decision makers at that point, if you're unable to get a concrete commitment uh, from them, or a timeline? Yeah, I, I think there's a, a number of ways you can go about this. Um, and again, it goes back to a little bit that point about building relationships. Maybe sometimes the first time someone's presented with an issue, you might get that, that response of, oh, we'll look into it. And maybe it's just genuine. They, they want to read more up on it. They haven't been um, confronted with that particular issue or maybe the particular solution that you're, you're looking at. Um, and so it is about, I think, creating some of that regular communication and building that relationship because then maybe the second time you go back, um, then they they maybe have um, interacted with that issue and they, they have a, a different perspective to share. Um, it's also, I think, about building who your champions are. And the reality is, it's not everyone is going to be a champion on every issue, uh, but trying to find ways to find who your champions are on your issues um, and also um, help leverage them and, and their experience and, and their work with their colleagues. Because again, mm -hmm. of course, we know um, elected officials, they work in parties, they, they have different caucuses, sometimes based on regions, sometimes based on issues. Um, you know, committees are, are a huge piece as well. Um, mm -hmm. So if you have created through your communication, through your lobbying, a couple of really great champions on an issue. And to Emma's earlier point that that cross partisan nature is so, so important to mm. um, layered on top of all of this that we, we've been talking about. Um, but so if you can create champions, you know, across the aisle, that's, that's excellent as well. And then once you have those champions, um, 
you know, in order to be a champion, um, part of that is encouraging them to interact with their colleagues. And, and like I said, sometimes that's asking them to, to raise something in caucus or encourage committee colleagues to also take meetings with you um, to, to really build out that, um, that, that level of support um, within parties and committees and, and also across parties, um, because that's, you know, the best way to, to move towards success. Um, and, and there's a number of ways to do that. And um, sometimes they need to see the issue from a different angle. Sometimes it's a good, when you get that uh, a couple times, maybe on a particular ask or particular recommendation, we need to look into it, or this maybe requires further research. That could be a really good indication um, that maybe you need to go back internally as well, or, or maybe with the MP and say, hey, if we actually go and, and look further into this, uh, with you, would you be interested in meeting um, in maybe a couple months time mm. once we've had a chance to revisit it? And and that's useful too, right? The um, MPs and, and staff themselves have really good recommendations. And um, that's something I've confronted in the last couple of months with a client. We had really good consensus on kind of priorities um, and, and broader themes. But what we were hearing from MPs was they wanted some more specifics on how to actually go about implementing a mm. policy in that area or what the specific policy mechanism is. Right. And so that can be really, sometimes it's good feedback to go back and, and maybe you need to come at it from a different angle. You've been working on something for sometimes a couple of years and you're like, we're just not getting traction on this issue. You just keep getting it. I know you both, I see Emma smiling because <laughs> I know this is something that in the, the student lobbying world as many, as well as with many <laughs> other lobbying, there's sometimes you, you go back and back on the same issue and you're like, this just isn't working. And maybe you need to come at it from another recommendation or another angle. Timing's a huge factor. All of this in terms of lobbying exists in an external environment of political climate that particularly right now is constantly changing. Right. <laughs> um, and you know, <laughs> like so rapidly, uh, like yesterday in Ontario um, and, and you know, over the last few weeks. Um, and, and that's the reality we live in right now. Things are moving and changing especially fast, but this is, is typically the case in a political uh, climate environment as well. And so you also need to sometimes recognize the environment you're working in um, and that timing can also impact uh, your success. And, and sometimes there's, there's a change in government or there's, there's a shift that allows you to, to reset. Um, and, and those are all opportunities as well to kind of go back and revisit um, maybe some of those amb ambiguous answers or, or to, to take another stab at an issue from a different angle or um, by going back to your champions. I think those are some ways you can go about um, uh, dealing with, with some of that. Mm. Yeah, that's really insightful. And I think it goes back to another piece that you had brought up earlier was, you know, parliamentarians, whether that's MPs, senators, etc., are people too. And, and sometimes there may be good reason for, you know, yeah, let's take a look into this. And that could also present an opportunity to keep your foot in that door and mm -hmm. to continue to develop that relationship and, and perhaps get more out of it. Um, other times, maybe it requires you to take another approach. But again, it's all about that relationship and dealing with people. And it's really neat how, even though we've talked about it more at a high level, you know, in every single question, you've kind of come back to the more humanistic approach to yeah. lobbying, which is, I think, really refreshing too because I know even you know when Sweda and I had started out and, and of course when we had first met you you know lobbying on the hill that's so scary <laughs> like I remember being so nervous because I, I think like oftentimes when we think of the term lobbying or when we think of the term a lobbyist it comes off as okay you know that's a really big you know corporate type operation mm -hmm. uh, but we know for a fact and I know in our own experiences and it and in many others across Canada at the provincial and federal level, oftentimes lobbying stems from grassroots advocacy. And mm -hmm. lobbying is, is, like you said earlier, it's a really um, strategic and refined strategy of grassroots advocacy. How would you describe that relationship of grassroots efforts with lobbying? Yeah, I agree. I think it's a huge part, particularly um, a number of my clients, like I said, are associations. So this is, it's quite similar to, to what we had um, as, as student leaders working with a national uh, association like 
CASA, you know, the, the feedback and the initial uh, discussions about what were priorities and what were things we were going to lobby on came from what individual people um, as members of the organization were hearing on their campuses. Um, and that's the case with a lot of the, the folks I work with because they very similarly have members across the country and sometimes um, that, that's part of it as well. They, they come and say, we have a specific issue in this province. And, mm. and sometimes we spend some time on that or there's that, that consensus building as well. And I think there's, um, there's grassroots lobbying tactics that you can also build into your, your overall strategy as well. Um, I know we, I've had a lot of conversations recently about digital advocacy and mm. the role that plays, which I think is obviously yeah. right now is a huge, huge piece. Um, as we're all working remotely, but I think even, you know, moving post pandemic, that's not going to go away. We all live in a very digital world. And so, um, you know, we've talked about things um, like letter writing campaigns and, and different tools where you can get members of maybe, maybe there's the executive director and some of the staff of an organization are, are taking those meetings with MP but if you can pair that with that local insight yeah. um, grassroots level uh, communication, like, like we said, it is so, so important. And, and it's, it's valuable for the folks that you're, you're targeting in terms of your lobbying, whether it's MPs or, um, or folks provincially as well, because if they can hear, it's one thing to hear an issue from an executive director or a president of an association. And, and it's another to also hear it from a constituent um, yeah. and say, hey, this is um, actually how this issue is impacting me in your riding, in your community. And so I think that grassroots has a huge, huge role in lobbying. And I think when you are pairing those grassroots tactics, whether it's it's connecting members with um, um, local officials or some of that, whether it's letter writing or those types of grassroots tactics, th that's really where you often see great success because mm -hmm. it touches on so many of those points we've discussed in terms of um, politics always being local and building those relationships in, in kind of networks across the country. And so I think it has such an important role and it's often where you see some of the most effective lobbying. Mm. Absolutely. And, you know, I was just thinking back to something you said earlier is that, you know, especially in student politics, you'd put an ask forward and then it would be years before you actually saw any traction on it. And I just remember the number of times we've gone into a meeting and said, you know, you've seen this policy before three, four, five, six years yeah. ago. So, <laughs> yeah, I was thinking back. To back. Yeah, I remember one of the first calls I think I ever had one on one with Emma, where she was like, Rana, listen, we've been lobbying on experiential learning. <laughs> and she's like, you guys just got some wins on this in New Brunswick. Like, how'd you go about doing that? And exactly, like, that's what I mean is, is those connections in terms of um, ex similar experiences and, and sharing good policy ideas. Like, that's how you can make things move, particularly in the Maritimes, when you can say another Maritime province has done this. <laughs> that's always a really useful uh, leverage point in Atlantic Canada, particularly. <laughs> no, go to do this. So why can't we do it in New Brunswick? <laughs> So yeah, there's there's good ways to to do that as well and to share good ideas and but yeah, it takes some time and that's that's that cycle rather than mm -hmm. a linear or transactional process. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And our last formal question for you, which might be the most difficult one, is what is your favorite thing about being a lobbyist? Uh, this is a great question. Um, I have like a, a simple kind of funny answer, which is just that I realized this the other day, um, I think it was Monday, I had I did um, some lobbying training with a client that is, um, you know, doing a lot of this stuff for the first time, um, and, and was working on a couple other things for, for different clients. And at the end of the day, I kind of saw it back and I was like, this really is my dream job. And, wow. this is the reason. and it's because you get to talk about politics all the time. <laughs> me and, and I know you two are quite similar. Like, that's all I want to do anyway. <laughs> so, uh, so I love that, that every day when I, I get on calls with clients, and I found even over the holidays, like, developing some of those relationships with, with my clients, like, I really miss just, just chatting with them about some of these things, what's going on in the world, political climate, um, and then, you know, what we're doing in terms of, to advance their issues. And then I, I would say that that's kind of the second thing. Um, and I know you both are well-versed in this too, but we often talk about um, moving change or moving things forward from the inside versus the outside of government. Mm -hmm. And I think there's huge, huge value to both. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, but I think that's the other piece that's really rewarding. And of course, I'm very new in my role. And so um, we're starting to see, there's a couple clients that we're starting to see some, uh, some interest and, and some movement on, on some issues. 
issues and, uh, you know, hoping moving towards uh, perhaps some bigger wins, but that's really rewarding to be able um, to, to see that change happen. And, and that's something that I, I initially felt when I was first introduced to advocacy and lobbying as a student leader. And I remember um, my vice president, the year I was president, Emma Walsh, who I know you both know, um, she came back to me after her first one of her first CASA meetings and she's like, this is kind of addicting. <laughs> she, <laughs> like, this is just so fun because just, you get to see that, that change happen and you get to see people get excited about issues that you care about and, and see actually really positive change happen. And, and that's, you know, that's what really drives me as a person. And I get to see that happen in so many different areas in what I do now. And, and um, that's, that's what I really enjoy. So those are my two favorite things, talking politics and, and hopefully getting to make, uh, have a, a contribution to some positive change. Mm -hmm. That's, that's awesome. beautiful. Well, in my opinion, <laughs> impact, if you're listening, give this girl a raise. She's just been talking you up and loves what she does and does a wonderful job and is extremely effective, not to mention an incredibly nice person. So I'm also very, very fortunate. We have such a good team and especially over the last few months, I, I've been, been quite new and really learning on my feet every day. So really, really grateful for uh, the team at Impact and as well just, um, you know, doing the, the Masters in Political Management. A lot of my colleagues work at, uh, or former classmates work at different for firms and it's just, it's overall, it's, it's a fun environment to be in to, to know folks that are just really driven by that, that same, the same types of things I just mentioned. Mm. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing your expertise, Brianna. You're one of the most accomplished young people on the Hill, no question. And you have such a wide breadth of experience and expertise uh, from, you know, growing up in Ottawa and then, of course, doing your undergrad at uh, St. Thomas, of course, in New Brunswick, and then going back to Ottawa and getting your master's and working in a number of different groups. So um, you're killing it. I'll keep it up. <laughs> I was saying this to Emma Sweta a couple of months ago when uh, Emma and I were chatting and I was just like, I really commend you two for this podcast. Um, and the fact that you tweeted about it and then did it like the next week was incredible. Um, and it continues to be something I really enjoy listening to. I was talking to Emma. I think this space for, for political conversations, um, particularly ones that can be focused on Atlantic Canada, is something that um, I super, super enjoy listening to every week. So thank you both so much. That's and very, very kind of you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. So we're going to transition to the last and really most important question. Um, and so, of course, um, you know, we've now gotten to the important part, the beer panel. Lobbying is great. Beer is also great. So, of course, <laughs> listeners know every week we now do a beer panel. Um, what this is, is you can just tell us about a beer that you've had, whether that's local in Ottawa or maybe one of your favorite ones from your time on the East Coast in Fredericton. That would be cool, too, uh, or anything that you want to share. So, Brianna, as you are our special and honorable guest, what is your beer recommendation this week for the beer panel? Um, is it okay if I recommend a Radler? Oh yeah, Fine. definitely. Okay, excellent. <laughs> um, so I, I was thinking about this and I realized one, I haven't drank a lot of beer lately because um, it's something I tend to drink when I go to a bar or a restaurant and I haven't been to one of those in a really long time. <laughs> so um, I haven't drank a ton of beer lately and there's definitely some really great um, craft breweries in Ottawa that I've tried, but my heart still very much lives on the East Coast and, and hey. the brewery. <laughs> I can't let some of them go and anytime well pre-pandemic when we were traveling anytime like co-workers or friends were, were going out east I was like I have a list <laughs> um, and uh, and in August my roommate uh, former roommate and, and very good friend Yana who I know you both know went yes. back to New Brunswick and I said I really need you to bring me back some pump house crafty rap. oh yes oh, yeah. <laughs> so that's what I'm gonna recommend and, and Yana I wasn't the only one who had a requested Diana for that. Um, she had like multiple cases that she brought back and distributed to to those of us here in Ottawa who really really love that. But those I like Rattlers overall, um, especially in the summer. I just think they're super refreshing and awesome. But those Pump House Crafty Rattlers, they're just I don't know. They're they're super juicy and just refreshing and delicious. And I I miss them. <laughs> I need Aww. to find a way to to transport them to Ottawa because um, yeah, they're. Uh, 
they're a drink of choice that I, I certainly miss um, from after uh, living on the East Coast. So that's my mm. recommendation. <laughs> I, I actually have a bit of a funny story about Pump House Rattlers. Oh my God. <laughs> I, I think Emma knows what this is. So yes. one time we were at our campus pub, which is the Fox and Crow, and they were um, you know, changing out the beers and putting in the new Rattler because we just had the new taps put in. And then there was some issue with the taps where they wouldn't just, they just wouldn't close. So Darn. our, they, it, it was just, so our bar manager found that the only solution to that would be to start filling pitchers full of pump house Rattler. Um, so of course, I think this might've been a Thursday or a Friday, which kind of makes this whole thing a lot more explainable, but I walk into the campus pub at uh, 2 p.m. and our bar manager, Mike, says, do you want to buy Rattler? I give it to you at cost because otherwise we're going to have to throw this away. So at that point, I was like, okay, I could buy this or, you know, let him throw it away or sell it to someone else. But ended up buying a picture of Rattler at like 3 p.m. on a Friday, then sent a message to the rest of the executives. So that was Emma, Tessa, and Keisha to be like, there's Rattler down at the pub. I can't drink this on my own. Please help. Um, so that was how we ended up with a picture of Rattler um, without even thinking about buying it. Sometimes we have to serve the campus community in a variety of different ways. And that was just one of them. It was it was hard, but it had to be done for the students. The student dollars were not wasted that day. No. Awesome. So uh, my beer recommendation is very much in line with the classics. It's a sour. It's the dry hopped sour from Gahan. Um, I think it's really nice. It's really refreshing. And um, it has a little bit of an aftertaste to it that's actually pretty nice. So the dry hop sour from Gahan is from their after hours series as well. Mm, very good. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm going to tell another very quick story. So Brianna, I know you're an avid listener, so you're familiar with this story. But for listeners who maybe missed last week's episode <laughs> with Brooks Roach on diabetes policy and PEI, he had jokingly said when we had the beer panel, you know, I recommend Copper Bottom. Oh, by the way, at the checkout, use discount Brooks 10. And then he's like, oh, no, I'm joking. I'm joking. That would have been really cool. And then and of course, on Monday, whenever the episode had aired, Copper Bottom had actually responded uh, to his post on Instagram about it and said, we're actually going to honor this and folks use Brooks 10 on our online store and it will go, uh, all the 10% uh, will go to as well as a matched uh, savings to a uh, charity for diabetes on PEI. So that was very cool. So a big shout out to Copper Bottom. I'm also going to hype them up because I think um, classic. PEI, Classic East Coast, just being super supportive of mm -hmm. community members. So I'm going to hype up their beer. It's called The Lotus. It was a seasonal beer in the summer, or I believe the end of summer, early fall. It's not on the tap right now, but it was very good. I think it was an IPA. I typically drink IPAs. Mm -hmm. Anyways, it was delicious. Really recommend. Um, and if not, of course, because it's a seasonal, uh, a classic one, and I know I've recommended this before, the uh, Rabble Rouser Red is, of course, uh, another delicious one so a big thank you to copper bottom incredible delicious great. beers and great people yeah. you'll have to make me those recommendations <laughs> well brianna you're always welcome on pei and we will definitely take you to copper bottom as well as a lot of different pubs of course have pump house so we can have some of that too and and you're always welcome on pei well, it's absolutely my first stop post-pandemic. I'm doing a loop of the Maritimes. Wicked. <laughs> Everyone, so I can't wait. <laughs> Whenever that happens in the indeterminate future, I will definitely take you up on that. Wicked. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Brianna. It's been a treat. Like we said, it's, it's incredible to have such an accomplished, knowledgeable person such as yourself discussing this really interesting topic that is lobbying in Canada. Oh, well, thank you so much for, for letting me ramble about lobbying legislation <laughs> and everything else. It's, it's, lots of, it's fun to, to get to check, uh, catch up and, and chat with you both, for sure. So thank you. Awesome. awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Stay warm and stay safe, everyone. As always, our opening and closing music is Gaspé Z by Shane Pendergast. Shane has two shows coming up at Mark's Lounge on January 29th and 30th. 
from 9 p.m. to 12 a.m. We've been told that this might be where you get to hear his new single, It Slips Away for the First Time, so these are definitely shows we'd recommend attending. We most certainly do recommend that folks check out Shane's upcoming shows at Mark's Lounge. I recently attended his show at Trailside last Wednesday and had the opportunity to hear the new single, It Slips Away. It's a very beautiful song and very capturing of a moment and really something to be experienced if you have the opportunity. Also, if you would like to order it beforehand, you could check out it on distrokid.com. Again, that's called It Slips Away by Shane Pendergast. As always, this has been Dialogue.